I'd like you to take your Bible, please, and we're going to be in, in so many different passages of Scripture today, but I want to begin in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and so you can, uh, you can open up to that place, and I want to just say from the get, I want to say that today's, uh, today's message is going to be a bit longer than usual. Uh, I'm not apologetic for that. Uh, I'm just letting you know so that you can kind of set your expectations that if you're used to sitting through a 30-minute sermon, uh, you're going to be, you have the opportunity to be stretched and grown today. So uh, I, I, we just have uh, uh, much to cover, and, um, uh, and I, I've done my best to pare it down to the essentials, but if I uh, trim any more, we will lose the essence and the effect of what I believe God wants to say to us today. Uh, so you can settle in for that. Today what I want to do is take you on a journey of sorts through an issue that has challenged me for years. For years I have wrestled with the issue of women in ministry. Trying to learn and trying to apply what the Bible teaches on this important subject. Basically... There are two sides to this discussion. Some believe that all ministries of the church are open to both men and women, while others claim that certain ministries are reserved for men only. My guess, and that's, it's just that, my guess is that most of us haven't researched this on our own. Not because we don't care, but because we simply adapted to the particular church culture in which we were raised. Uh, I think this is very common, completely understandable, and it's certainly been my story. Like many people in many churches, I adopted someone else's position rather than researching it for myself. Uh, but over the last 10 years or so, I've been proactively studying this issue of women in ministry for several reasons, some personal, some pastoral. And the more I, I, I learn, the more I've grown, and the more firm my conviction. So this message is, in many ways, the intersection between my own study of Scripture and my personal journey. A journey shared by many others, including some of you, some in this room, as I've discovered along the way, a journey of those who grew up believing one thing, but now understand the issue differently than they once did. A journey that has led me to believe that ministry in the church is not gender-specific, but a matter of one's gifts and call from God. So as I said, we'll be all over the Bible this morning in both the Old and New Testaments, but to help frame this conversation, I'd like to begin with a well-known passage that speaks to the church and to just basic church life found in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You can read it along with me. I'll be reading from verse 12 through verse 27. There we read, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? 
If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Let's pray. God, I want to thank you again for our time this morning in your word, and we've, we, we, we've gathered in this place to declare your worth, to express our gratitude and praise, and now we come before your word that we may learn your truth and your heart, and should you please give us a spirit of humility and teachability that we would... Um, that we would be open to whatever it is you want to teach us today, whatever it is you want to say to us today, through your word, for the glory of your name and the good of your church. We look to him who is the head of the church, to Jesus Christ, and we pray in his name these things. Amen. I believe the Bible teaches... That ministry in the church is not gender specific, but a matter of one's gifts and call from God. I believe this for three reasons, primarily, which we will consider this morning. First, because the general tenor of Scripture repeatedly affirms women and even elevates women above the assumed societal norms, including various leadership roles. Second, because the few verses that appear to prohibit women from certain ministries must be understood in light of their immediate context. And third, because fundamentally, the issue centers upon a person's gifts and call from God. The first reason why I believe the Bible affirms women in ministry is because the general tenor of Scripture repeatedly affirms the ministry contributions of women and frequently elevates women to various leadership roles. We see examples of this in the creation account, in the Old Testament, in the ministry of Jesus, in the formation and ministry of the early church, and in the ministry of the Apostle Paul. The creation story reveals a full equality of man and woman before God. God made both in His image. Both received the cultural mandate to fill the earth and subdue it. Both were blessed by God together. The equal partnership between man and woman is presented from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1. And it is again retold in the creation story in Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis 2, we also learn that the woman was created to be a helper for the man. However, the word helper, ezer in in Hebrew, when used of a person in the Old Testament, almost always, there's just one exception, but almost always refers to God himself. 29 different times in the Old Testament, this word ezer is used in reference to God and the help He is to us. So in no way is the word easer 
an expression of subordination or subservience to man. Rather, the woman as helper serves God with man. Throughout the Old Testament, God called, God empowered, God blessed women in ministry. For example, God called Miriam as a prophetess and leader as she served alongside her brothers Moses and Aaron. He summoned Deborah to be a prophetess and judge over Israel. Deborah directed Barak, exercised authority over Barak as to how military victory was to be won, and she even accompanied him into battle. God led the prophetess Huldah, even though Jeremiah and Zephaniah were also prophets at the time, it was Huldah who sparked a great religious revival in the reign of King Josiah. During the Israelites' exile, God appointed Esther as queen over Persia, who then rescued her people from genocide. And God predicted, through an Old Testament prophet, the coming of the long-expected day of the Lord when the Holy Spirit would be poured out on both men and women, and they and their sons and daughters would prophesy. In spite of the stigma against women in ancient Near East cultures, the Bible repeatedly celebrates the examples of these women and does not censure them. The New Testament similarly shows that Jesus differed from the prevailing culture in his ministry to and with women. In his day, women were, were regarded as inferior in virtually every area of life. If you read some of the accounts, it really breaks your heart. And then it breaks your heart even more to know that some of these thoughts and practices are still occurring in parts of the world today. For example, it was said, commonly said, better is the wickedness of a man than a woman who does good. And yet Jesus, in word and deed, affirmed women. And he elevated them culturally. Jesus, Jesus ministered to men and women without distinction. In spite of the laws regarding uncleanness, he allowed a woman with a 12-year menstrual problem to touch him, and he commended her faith. He violated several cultural taboos to share the good news with the Samaritan woman, who then evangelized her town. He permitted a sinful woman to anoint and kiss his feet, which appalled the, par- the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, and yet, amazingly, her act of devotion won higher praise from Jesus than any other act in the Gospels. In his day, respectable teachers did not teach women. Nevertheless, Jesus taught women. He included them in his group of committed disciples. He taught Mary of Bethany, you know the story, who sat at his feet and learned from him, which was just absolutely unheard of at the time for a woman to assume the posture of a disciple, of a learning disciple. And yet Jesus discipled her in this way and commended her to her sister Martha and was willing, uh, similarly willing to disciple Martha as well. According to Luke chapter 8, Many women were in Jesus' band of traveling disciples, including Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna, and, quote, many others. These women were present at the crucifixion. They were present at Jesus' burial. They were present on resurrection morning. In fact, Jesus chose women to be the first to see him and the first to announce this good news. Undoubtedly, I think, Jesus' example was a powerful witness to the early church. Both men and women 
were awaiting the fulfillment of the promise that they would receive power to witness when the Holy Spirit would come upon them. It was this group of men and women that was filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost and began to speak in many different languages to the Jews who had assembled in Jerusalem at that time. And Peter took that occasion to point back to the prophet Joel to say, this, what you are seeing now, is what Joel had predicted, that your sons and your daughters will prophesy, and on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit. So the birth of Christ's church was accompanied by the demonstration and the proclamation that men and women would both serve as God's voices to carry the message of Jesus to the world. To this point, did you know there are more examples of female prophets than male prophets in the New Testament? In spite of all the cultural bias against women at that time. For example, Acts chapter 21 says that Philip's four daughters were known for their gifts of prophecy. Early Christians considered prophecy one of the highest, if not the highest, positions in the church. They didn't make a distinction between prophets and preachers because both were responsible for preaching the Word of God under the Holy Spirit's anointing. Philip's daughters are examples of women in the early church who were recognized with the gift of prophecy and who prophesied regularly. Then there's Lydia, who was the first member of the church in Philippi and the church met in her home. There's Priscilla, who taught and mentored Apollos, himself a teacher in the church. There's Eunice and Lois, each of whom passed their faith on to Timothy, who eventually met up with Paul and pastored the church in Ephesus, and we could go on. Even the Apostle Paul affirmed women in ministry. Like Jesus, Paul was unflinching when referring to certain women as co-laborers who labored with him side by side, right with him. Paul's letters mention 12 women by name who were co-workers with him in the ministry of the gospel. We read of some of this in Romans, uh, the last chapter of Romans, chapter 16, where he mentions 10 women, seven of whom he speaks of with incredibly high commendation, He refers to one of them as a deacon who'd been a great help to to many and to himself. He refers to another as outstanding among the apostles, refers to another as a fellow worker, and refers to those who worked hard in the Lord and for the Roman believers. In Philippians chapter 4, he mentions two women who had contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. These women... And their partnership with Paul and the way in which Paul describes their level of involvement, that they weren't taking behind the scenes uh, minimal roles, but they were out front, side by side, serving with him in the gospel. To me, this reveals the inclusive nature of ministry. And in what was probably his first epistle, he wrote, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. Now, obviously, this statement refers to a spiritual dimension. It refers to the equal access we have to God through faith in Jesus Christ. But isn't it interesting that it also clearly addresses and intends to remove the dominant cultural barriers at that time? So, From the creation account and throughout the Old Testament, from the New Testament ministry of Jesus and the birth and ministry of the early church, including the ministry of the Apostle Paul, Scripture affirms the ministry contributions of women and offers many, many examples of women teaching and serving 
in various leadership roles. However, those who, who believe that women should not teach or hold leadership positions in the church as I once did point to two particular passages. So I want to address these passages head on. I believe these passages neither negate nor supersede the rest of Scripture. And in fact, they must be understood in light of their immediate context. So here we go. 1 Timothy, chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, say, Let a woman learn quietly, with all submissiveness, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. How many of you have read this verse, familiar with this verse? Seems very clear. Not much ambiguity here. Or so it appears. Paul's instruction here is very simply stated, and I assume it was readily understood among its initial recipients. But therein lies the dilemma. Did Paul mean this to apply to all churches, in all places, at all times in history, or was it intended specifically for the church at Ephesus that Timothy was pastoring at that particular time? In other words, the question we must answer is, is this instruction cultural or transcultural? And I believe, given the widespread support of women in ministry throughout Scripture, this particular instruction is intended for the Ephesian church specifically. If this passage is to be taken literally and applied transculturally, in other words, it applies to all churches, in all places, at every point in history, it would exclude any woman from serving in any capacity that requires any degree of initiative or authority on her part to teach a man in any way. Because boys over the age of 13 were considered men in the ancient world, this verse, if taken at face value, would mean that under no circumstance should a woman teach or exercise any degree of leadership if there are any males over 13 years old present in the room. Now, teaching and leadership comes in many forms, of course, so this would automatically prohibit women from serving in a myriad of ways, including teachers, Sunday school teachers, youth leaders, worship leaders, and even missionaries unless they confine their ministries to only other women or girls or boys who hadn't yet reached their teen years. Further, the, word, or the term translated to exercise authority, to me it's very telling that, that this is the only place in the entire New Testament where that particular term is used. And it's rarely used in Greek language, in other Greek writings. It is just not the usual word for positive authority, for active authority. Rather, this word is a negative term, which, refused, which refers to the abuse of authority. And so, 
it seems the specific prohibition here is against some abusive activity, but not against the appropriate exercise of authority in the church. But let's just say, for the sake of argument, let's just say we still choose to interpret, we interpret that instruction in a literal, transcultural way. We're going to take it at face value, and we're going to apply it to every church everywhere at all times. Let's just go down that road for a minute. Well, if we do that, we must treat the surrounding verses in the same way, right? It's, that's just good principle of interpretation. We don't get to pick and choose. If we're going to be literal and transcultural with this verse, then the verses around it require us to be literal and transcultural as well. And yet, in the two verses preceding verse 11, women are told to not braid their hair. They're told to not wear jewelry. They're told to dress in certain clothing. And in the verses immediately following verse 12, we're told that women, being descendants of Eve, are still in transgression, but will be saved through childbearing if certain conditions are met. Now, that's a lot to take in. But I am not aware of a single church. I mean this. I'm not aware of a single church that takes these two statements literally and transculturally. Granted, there are some churches that do encourage women to dress simply with very little outward adornment, but even they, at least the ones I'm aware of, even they allow for the occasional hairdo, (laughs) even they allow for a wedding ring, Even they allow for a special outfit for certain events. And certainly, no Bible-believing church truly thinks that women are saved through the bearing of children. Do we really want to argue that women today are in a state of transgression from which childbearing saves them? Of course not. Because salvation is by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone. But even if we aren't exactly sure what the big deal is about braided hair or jewelry or expensive clothes. Most of us, right? Most of us intuitively know that these things tend to be cultural in their application. And even if we aren't exactly sure what Paul's getting at when talking about salvation through childbirth, by the way, these statements, this passage, salvation through childbirth, that that still confounds biblical scholars all across the board. No one is really positively sure what Paul's saying there. But even if we even if we aren't sure, intuitively, just intuitively we know that something else must be going on, right? So why then when Paul inserts between these two statements about how to dress and do your hair and you'll be saved through childbirth, why when Paul suddenly says, by the way, women can't teach or have authority, why do we immediately jump to that and interpret it in a literal, transcultural way? Do we really want to take that verse with all of its difficulties and make it the basis for a theology of women in ministry? The second passage, we'll show this up here, the second passage usually cited is this one. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 34 and 35. The women 
should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission. As the law also says, if there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. How many of you are familiar with this passage? Or at least you've read it. So can we just be honest for a minute? Obviously, no one, no one in this room truly takes these verses literally and applies them in a transcultural way. None of us do. No one here truly believes that women are not allowed to speak in church at all. Not only would that mean they couldn't teach or give personal testimony, it also means they couldn't pray, they couldn't give an announcement, they couldn't sing, they couldn't lead in song. In fact, if we take this literally and transculturally, it would mean that once a woman, like the very moment a woman stepped foot inside the church building, she'd be forbidden from saying a single word. Because if taken literally, it would be shameful to do so. I'm very thankful that no one takes this verse as universal truth. No one does. And if, if so, we're all in big trouble, right? So right away, just right away, just common sense would say that there's, there's something else that must be going on here. There must be something else in play. I think it's also helpful to know that this isn't un- to be understood in a literal way because just three verses, or I'm sorry, three chapters earlier in chapter 11, Paul assumes, this is chapter 11, verse 5, he assumes that, m- that women will pray and even prophesy in church, and he gives instruction on how to do so. So in light of what Paul says in chapter 11, why would he contradict himself in chapter 14? Again, it's just making the point that something else must be going on, and indeed there was. Now, I found this very insightful and very funny. But historians tell us that because Christianity elevated women above the societal norms at that time, and because women now shared, they shared equality with men as joint heirs in Christ, initially they made, shall we say, exaggerated use of their right to speak in church. Uh, they would speak out during the church service. Uh, they would ask questions. They would uh, call. They would they would call out to their husbands. Now you have to understand that that men and women sat on opposite sides of the church, so you can imagine how disruptive that must have been. They would even call out their husbands. You've seen like the elbow in the ribs. Well, imagine someone standing up in the middle of church and yelling across the other side, saying, are you listening to this? Now, as you well know, if you've read 1 and 2 Corinthians, the Corinthian church had all kinds of issues to sort through. 
I mean, they posed a very real challenge to Paul. So when Paul heard that some women were disrupting the service in that way, he simply put a stop to it. He called them to humility. He called them to submit to authority and to worship in an orderly way, which, by the way, if you look at the context here of 1 Corinthians 14, that's the whole context, orderly worship. How to practice orderly worship. And he told the wives that rather than ask your questions during the service, just save them until you get home. And so the second reason why I believe the Bible affirms women in ministry is because the few verses that appear to prohibit them from certain ministries really should be understood in light of their immediate context. From the context of Paul's own writings, it's clear that his apparent prohibition of women speaking in church is not a universal and unequivocal principle for all churches of all time periods in all cultures. By the way, this is more of a parenthetical statement. If you're wondering, how do we discern when something is cultural or transcultural? Reading the Bible, how do we know? How can we find out if something is cultural or transcultural? There are three very basic interpretive steps we need to follow. First, we just need to come to the text knowing that every text has a context. We have to ask ourselves, what's going on here? Who, who are these people that the biblical author is writing to? And who is the biblical author? What context is, is he speaking into? Second, we need to identify, not, not run away from them, not ignore them. We need to identify and isolate the apparent contradictions. If we see something, if we read something that seems to not jive with things we've read elsewhere in Scripture, we need to ask ourselves, hmm, why is that? Why does this seem to say one thing and this is saying something different? We can't ignore that. We've got to deal with that in an honest way, which leads to the third Point, we need to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. And so we must also always allow those Scriptures that are more clear to interpret the less clear ones. These three principles, every, context, every text has a context, Identify and isolate the apparent contradictions. Interpret Scripture with Scripture have just been enormously helpful to me in this study and study on other issues as well. Okay, we're two-thirds. Maybe, maybe we're, we might be, be three-fourths of the way through here. Do we need to stretch? Are you okay? Okay. Because I believe I, I need your full attention for, I've needed your attention, but now I really need you to hone in, okay? Because I think this, to me, in my journey through this issue, this has been, this has been the thing that I just cannot get away from. It has solidified it for me. The third and most compelling reason why I believe the Bible affirms women in ministry is because the issue, fundamentally, the issue is about a person's gifts and call from God. The Bible teaches that when a person comes to Christ and is spiritually reborn, he or she receives certain gifts or skills from the Holy Spirit. 
these spiritual gifts are meant to edify the church and to strengthen the church's ministry in the world. And so I want to read just three of the pertinent passages. First, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says this. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers empowers them all in everyone to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. Next, Romans chapter 12. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given us, let us use them. And then 1 Peter chapter 4. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Now, we didn't read the full passages, but some, of, some examples of spiritual gifts listed in those passages include the gift of wisdom, knowledge, faith, gifts of healing, the working of miracles, prophecy, discernment, the gift of tongues, the interpretation of tongues, serving, teaching, exhortation, giving, leadership, mercy, helping, and administration. The Apostle Peter says those with speaking gifts should speak, as if, uh, should speak God's truth as if, he's, as if they're serving as God's mouthpiece. While he encourages everyone to serve in the strength that God supplies. So what do these passages convey? Each passage presents a variety of gifts given by God to members of the church. Each passage teaches that each member, each member, each member receives a gift and perhaps more than one. Each passage emphasizes how the gifts are to be used not for one's self, but for the common good, for others' benefit. But did you notice what isn't conveyed? What isn't conveyed anywhere in these passages, or anywhere in Scripture, for that matter, nowhere, what is not conveyed anywhere in Scripture is that the gifts are gender-specific. At no point does the Bible teach that certain gifts are reserved for men only, while others are only for women. Instead, each of the gifts are dispersed among the various members of the church, both male and female, as the Spirit chooses to disperse them. Because the Holy Spirit decides who gets which gift, it's not our place. It's God's place. God decides who gets which gift. Who are we to restrict their usage?
In other words, if a woman has teaching gifts, and we can all recognize, oh my goodness, what a gifted teacher. Who are we to hold her back? If a woman has the gift of leadership, and the church recognizes, oh my goodness, the way she can just see things and put things together, and, and, and the way she can rally people to the cause. Don't we all stand to benefit from that gift? The church's job is to honor the gifts and those who receive them as God distributes them among his people. And I have to say the stakes of this are huge. Because unless women use, like women, I'm, I'm talking to you here. Unless you use your God-given gifts and men, unless we encourage the women to use their God-given gifts, the church will be hemiplegic. Hemiplegic, you know this word. It's this condition that describes paralysis to one side of the body. In other words, because we are all members of the body of Christ, and since the body only functions as it's supposed to when each member does its part, each member must therefore bring to the table his or her God-given gifts and talents in order for the church to be everything He intends it to be. According to Ephesians chapter 4, we are to grow up. I'm I'm quoting here. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. That's us. I'm a joint. You're a joint. You're a joint. You're a joint. Every joint within the body is equipped when each is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And we have been commanded by Jesus to go into the world and make disciples among the nations. Baptizing people and and teaching them to follow Christ and, and neither the building up of the church in Ephesians 4 nor our witness to the gospel in the world. Nowhere is it gender specific. Both men and women as as members of the body of Christ, each gifted by the Holy Spirit as He sees fit, are to partner together, to partner in ministry together in obedience to God's call. In fact, when Peter wrote to the churches throughout Asia Minor, I know I'm throwing a lot of Scripture at you today, but it's because that's, that's what we need. When Peter wrote to the churches throughout Asia Minor, he referred to Christians as a priesthood of believers. Now, are we to assume that only male believers share in this priesthood? Of course not. So why would we restrict the ministry of some when clearly all members, male and female, are said to have a priestly function and call? That's why I chose to read 1 Corinthians 12 at the beginning. Because that passage, a very familiar passage, it teaches that no member of the body, 
No member of the body, none of us, not a single one of us should think of ourselves. No man, no woman should think of himself or herself as less important than the other members. On the flip side, that passage also says that no member of the body should consider other members unnecessary. Can't say, I have no need of you. Instead, all members are to value each of the others and affirm their God-appointed gifts and the role they play in fulfilling God's purposes in the church and His purposes in the world. In the end, and I'm coming to an end, in the end, I simply cannot exclude a person from ministry who isn't clearly and unequivocally excluded in Scripture. Especially a whole segment of persons. If the Bible leaves room for the possibility we must allow that possibility to exist. But in the case of women in ministry, it's more than a mere possibility. I believe the whole tenor of Scripture, both the Old and New Testaments, affirms the ministry contributions of women and often elevates women to various teaching and leadership roles. I believe the two passages that initially appear to prohibit women from certain ministries, neither supersede nor negate the teaching in the rest of Scripture. And in fact, they must be understood in light of their immediate context, and because each member of the church is gifted for ministry by the Holy Spirit, as the Holy Spirit deems best, I believe that ministry in the church is not gender-specific, but a matter of a person's gifts and call from God. Now again, this is a decade-long journey for me. And I'm still learning. It hasn't always been easy, but I'm better for it. And if I can be of any help to you on your journey through this or any issue, just let me know. Because we are one in Christ. And because we are one in Christ and we are each personally gifted by the Holy Spirit, let us affirm both men and women in their respective God-given callings. Amen.